Welcome to episode 104 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. And if you want to learn a little more about me, I was recently interviewed by Alex at ourvoicespodcast.com. Check it out. Temperatures are rising, forest fires are more frequent, and storms are more extreme. And what's more, it's our fault. I'm Alex Melia, host of Our Voices. We've just brought out an eight-episode season on climate change, specifically on the experts and activists trying to protect our planet. We'll hear their personal stories and see the world through their eyes. New episodes of Our Voices on climate change are out every Tuesday. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. This week, my featured guest is David Johnson, Stanford law professor, design thinker, a seasoned courtroom lawyer in the 80s in Miami, and experienced lecturer. He's spoken in front of Congress, represented corporations such as Apple and Cisco legally, and written articles about how technological and legal design can affect the climate. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with David Johnson, lecturer in law at Stanford University, focusing on negotiation and also lecturing at the Institute of Design at Stanford, affectionately known as D School. David, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. With regards to climate change, can you talk about your motivating moment? What got you engaged to focus on climate change? When I started my doctoral work, at Stanford in 1990, 30 years ago now, I started taking a close look and my primary interest was international environmental law, which back then had a lot to do with treaties on other environmental issues. But global warming slash climate change was starting to get a lot of attention even 30 years ago in the universities. Obviously, it was getting attention from scientists and others. So that's when I really became aware of it and started studying and sort of shifted my attention over to climate as opposed to more regional or global treaties on other issues. At Stanford, I suppose, like any student at any university, you're sort of paying attention to what's immediately in front of you. So, for example, we were lucky enough to have Steve Schneider on faculty at Stanford. He's one of the premier global climatologists and unfortunately had died prematurely. He was the first scientist to build a computerized model of the entire planet climate activity so that you could start modeling and making adjustments and predictions, et cetera, et cetera. And he was a real advocate for interdisciplinarity. I will never forget the way he described it in the conference room one day to not just us, but also a bunch of faculty, which was, we've been doing multidisciplinary work for 
ages in academia and it works as far as it goes. Multidisciplinary is when you get two, three, four, five, six experts in different disciplines to work on a particular problem together as a committee. And it's served us well for a long time. Interdisciplinary work, in his view, is where the expertise resides in the one individual. So you have an individual who's an expert in one space, and they then have to develop expertise in a secondary or sometimes tertiary space to really be able to do truly interdisciplinary work. And his motivation for advocating this is that the university was set up in silos. And he said, and he was correct, the real world problems don't respect the silos of the university and the disciplines in the university. The real world problems land between those silos. So if we're going to really work on those problems, we have to have people who are interdisciplinarians. And he said, this is the part that I like. He said, the trick to interdisciplinary work is to know enough about your secondary or tertiary subjects. He doesn't expect you to become a true expert in them, but he expects you to know enough not to be fooled by them. And it was really a big takeaway for me and got me started down the path of interdisciplinary work, which you know, to a degree is why I've reached out over to uh, not just technology, but also design. I would say at most companies, there's an issue with silos. Yeah. And the solution for many companies is to have I haven't heard it called interdisciplinary people, but people that understand multiple parts of the silo by giving them jobs in those other silos. Again, not to become experts. I'm trained in computer science. I'll never be a power engineer, but to know enough so that I can integrate my thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I've been in companies in Silicon Valley long enough to actually see that evolve, where companies used to have sort of more traditional and fewer departments, for lack of a better phrase. But then you got a point where you had product engineers sitting in the in the sales and marketing department because the products were technical enough that salespeople needed the help from engineers to be able to sell the product to sophisticated engineers who were the buyers. And the same thing happens on the finance side. There's now a burgeoning space in what's called sales operations, which is a group that sits between finance, data analysis, and the sales group to do data deep dive on the data and metrics of the sales team's performance without burdening the sales team having to do it themselves. And so you see these increasingly specialized spaces get filled with people who, and you know, if it's done well, it's a move towards efficiency and higher productivity, no doubt. You're talking more about your motivating moment. It was when I started my dissertation at Stanford and I mentioned Steven Schneider, but there were others. I was on campus at the time, and I don't know if you'll remember her, but Julia Butterfly Hill took her famous position, her seat in a giant sequoia up here in Northern California and tree sat in a protest against the cutting down of old growth forests for the better part of a year and a half. And that was happening while I was here. And now she was protesting, saving the sequoias and the saving the old growth, but it amplified the importance of trees more generally and trees and other plants as carbon sinks and the importance of stopping deforestation and taking on reforestation projects as carbon sinks with respect to climate change. And as an aside, if any of your listeners are really interested in a deep and pretty important novel 
about trees, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book Overstory, novel by Richard Powers, in 2019 won the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, it's a pretty powerful book, Overstory. If if you like trees, it's worth looking at. <laughs> I think we all should like trees and appreciate what yeah. they do for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in short, it's when I took a deep dive into the science and technology of what was actually going on in, in climate change that it really became a pivotal moment for me. Do you have any personal drivers? Yeah, I would say the intergenerational handoff. I don't know where that phrase came from. I learned it while I was in school. The idea that there's an obligation from generation to generation to, as humanity makes its progress, to make the transition uh, as efficient and smooth as possible. I fear, particularly in, like, say, the last 20 years, that we're kind of sliding backwards on the intergenerational handoff, which is to say we're finding more reinvention of the wheel and less passing forward of accrued knowledge and norms. And there's no doubt that norms have been damaged, at least in the U.S., in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, and it's unfortunate. But for me, addressing and working on climate issues is really about the intergenerational handoff, thinking two, five, seven generations downstream and trying to, as Julia Hill to mention again, to quote her, trying to be the kind of ancestor that I want to be for future generations. So when you meet people that don't have that same desire to help the intergenerational handoff or don't believe in the data or that any of this is real, how do you convince them otherwise? I sort of break this question into two parts. One is, am I talking to somebody who is apparently a real climate denier? sort of ideologically for whatever reason or politically just has adopted the position that there's no anthropomorphic climate change or that there's no climate change at all. I tend not to take those people on because I consider it to be a waste of both of our times. I, it's unfortunate, but that's the case. For somebody who indicates some genuine curiosity, usually I'll say something like, there's a mountain in Hawaii on top of that mountain, Mauna Loa in Hawaii, is one of our best observatories. It's on a mountain in Hawaii because of how clear the sky is. Back in the 1950s, a guy by the name of Keeling started measuring the amount of carbon dioxide that was in the atmosphere at the Mauna Loa Observatory. And over the years, he collected the data. And from that emerged what has now become known as the Keeling chart. And it demonstrates that since the 1950s to date, carbon dioxide has accumulated in our atmosphere something on the order of 35% more than when he started. It's a very clear, undeniable, up and to the right chart of increasing carbon dioxide. Now, we know carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. There was an article written in the 1890s suggesting that carbon dioxide emitted from coal plants could warm the planet, could serve as a greenhouse gas. So that's well known to us. The Keeling chart shows that the carbon dioxide has increased. Now, people can make arguments about whether that's entirely man-made, it's partly man-made, or it's entirely natural. But the data suggests strongly that it is anthropomorphic, that it is caused by human beings. 
And I'll usually stop there and see how they react. If they are interested in more information, then I move to the methane clathrates in the permafrost of the Arctic, talk about the 25x you know, sort of power component of methane as a greenhouse gas as opposed to carbon dioxide, talk about the lag times of both of them in the atmosphere, and suggest that we really have a greenhouse gas issue, even if you look just at CO2 and methane. And if that doesn't at least pique their curiosity, then I think I'm not going to succeed. Mostly when I talk to people, it isn't that they don't believe because those folks I don't have in my circle very much, but it's that they don't understand. And once we talk, they get scared. Yeah, the getting scared piece is something that I'm really starting to think about now. I'm not sure I mentioned this to you, but I'm working on a book now, which I'm calling roughly working title activism by design. But part of that activism is going to be about climate activism. I'm trying to bring design thinking to bear on how activists can do their work better for social justice projects. Uh, And one of those projects that's dear and dear to my heart is climate change. And so one of the obvious clear issues confronting all of us with respect to climate change activism and you know, individuals looking at climate change, people who really, really deeply care, is they feel so small and so powerless in the face of a problem that is so huge that they are naturally frightened, as am I naturally frightened when I stop and really think about what the future looks like going down one arc or the other. So I have already dedicated myself in chapter one of my book to take on the task that feeling powerless is not the same as being powerless. And I'm going to address how we as individuals can find and capture our power individually and more importantly, collectively as activists to overcome this stasis, this you know, sort of frozen state that we find ourselves in because of the fear of the magnitude of the problem. So you talked about your book, which is coming, but can you also talk about what you do day to day, week to week to help mitigate climate change? I think in this regard, I'm, I'm a lot like everyone else. I try to do the small things that I can. I happen to be really focused on plastics, especially single use plastics. And I've tried to eradicate them in my life and others around me. I'm a vegetarian. I try to live as sustainably as possible, composting, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a Californian. What am I going to say? And we do what we can. But I also try to add some value as a teacher, uh, as a researcher and writer. I'm moving in that direction. My last article had to do with design and legal systems, which really is a setup for my next article, which is going to try and apply design to climate change treaties. Uh, and I'm going to fold some of that material into my book. Back in 2009, I did a consult for Al Gore on the Waxman-Markey bill. You may remember the cap-and-trade bill that got a glimmer of hope in the House, but really never made it even to the Senate. I took a good close look at that and provided an opinion on that. And so when, when I'm asked to do things like that, I'll certainly jump in with both feet and try to help out. But for each of us, it's what what can we do uh, that optimizes our ability with respect to the issue? And for me, in my position at Stanford, it's talking about the issues with students, teaching 
and doing the research. Each of us tries to find the way we apply our unique skills yeah. to bring value to the problem. Yeah, that's right. That's all I'm doing with the podcast. Yeah, uh, clearly, yeah. Has the pandemic changed anything for you specifically and what you do with regards to climate change? You know, it has in at least one way, I wouldn't say tangible, but intangible. This is kind of serendipitous, but I was living and teaching in Singapore starting in August of 2019 through November of 2020, which is basically the, the year of COVID. So I was on the ground and saw firsthand how Singapore and Singapore, the government, and also most importantly, the citizenry and the culture of the Singaporeans took on the issue of controlling the pandemic, controlling the virus in their small island country. And it was clear to my eye that being an island helped with containment and being a central government, it's a city state. So it's one central government helped with control. And also the culture of their nation is quite different from the culture of America or uh, England. And they're more communal and more willing to do what's right for others. And you, you saw zero people running around saying, I'm not going to wear a mask. I don't like it. It doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> that just didn't happen in Singapore. So I came back to the States, had that experience of watching how that nation may, uh, managed it. After getting vaccinated, I happened to have reason to travel first to Africa and then Costa Rica, and then just most recently, Portugal. So where I'm leading to this is I feel like I got a pretty good sampling of several different nations on the ground for a good period of time each time of how different cultures, different nation states, and different economies had to deal with the pandemic. And then folding in the American experiment, for lack of a better phrase, on how it was handled or mishandled here. And what it brought to bear for me with respect to climate change is the, the, you know, first, the obvious for everyone who is looking at the pandemic is the virus touched every human being on the planet in one way or another. Climate change will touch every human being on the planet one way or the other, although some human beings will not feel it. <laughs> they will choose to try not to feel it or they will be able to not feel it by dint of their wealth, socioeconomic status, or perhaps just luck of their location on the planet. But by and large, most everybody on the planet is going to feel increasingly effects of climate change. And so the parallels there cannot be ignored. So I extrapolate from the pandemic piece that there really is an important difference in how a certain nation state government chooses to deal with the pandemic is going to carry over to how they choose to deal with climate change issues. The nation state has to deal with its own jurisdiction and its own people, but it also has to interlace with what everybody else on the planet is doing. Uh, even Singapore learned, and even New Zealand learned, by benefit of your island, you can control your borders and get to zero, but once you open your borders, you, can, you can't stay at zero. And that underscores the fact how absolutely intertwined we all are with respect to issues of climate change. There are absolutely no borders of climate change. You can't close None. anything. Yeah. No, there's no closing the borders. Yeah. And there ought not be any free riders, least of all 
those who are most responsible. I can't emphasize that enough. And that's really the big problem for climate change is the people, the nations and the populations who are doing the most carbon polluting are the ones who are intentionally or otherwise trying to be free riders. I read that China just took a strong step back into coal to help deal with some of its energy shortages, mm. which is a big concern. And China and Australia are deeply intertwined in coal because Australia has a lot of it and it's a major source of, of revenue for them. And Scotty Morrison is getting pretty much lambasted down in Australia for his continuing support for the coal industry in the face of the commitments in, under Paris. Can you talk about your prior background? I started my professional life as a trial lawyer in the downtown courtrooms of Miami, Florida in the 1980s. And if you're old enough or as old as I am, then you know a little bit of how wild the 1980s were in Miami by way of the immigration influx, the racial tensions that arose in Miami, as well as the very horrific drug trade and drug wars that were going on at the time. It was a little bit the Wild West down in Miami, but it was a great time to be a trial lawyer. And I really enjoyed my time and I learned a lot doing it, but I knew I was going to leave. Ultimately, after 10 years, I went back to school at Stanford and started studying what really interested me, which was environmental law. I kept practicing law for a while in Silicon Valley just because it was there and the growth of technology was so intriguing, it was hard to resist. Uh, but slowly and steadily, I backed into research and writing and teaching at Stanford. It was, it was an easy fit and very convenient. And so I've been doing that for the last 20 plus years now. Can you talk about setbacks that you had during those times? We've all had setbacks. I have yet to meet a person who hasn't had a at least one, and many people have had more than their fair share, to be honest, of major setbacks in their life. And it always amazes me how people overcome them. They find the courage, they find the plasticity, if you will, to overcome them. Mine came when I was in the second year of writing my dissertation, and I had a really severe physical injury, uh, badly fractured hip and femur. I had to do three surgeries across the course of a year and a half. And if you've ever had deep anesthesia for major surgery, you'll probably understand when I say, you don't come back from that and start writing your dissertation again shortly after surgery. The effects of the drugs, I don't know how to describe it. My anesthesiologist nodded his head, but he couldn't describe it the whys and wherefores, that you just can't think at that, that high level that you want to be thinking at for a long period of time. The half-life is really long <laughs> of the impact. So basically, I had two years away from my academic work. So I took my master's ABD and went back to work a little bit to you know recover from that setback and then picked up and kept going in the direction that I had intended to, which was teaching, research, and writing, which is where I had hoped to go originally. Very cool. Hey, so that worked its way into a success by overcoming it. But can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? Sure. You know, there's a few of them, and they're kind of scattered about. I would say there were a couple of really big jury trials I had early in my career in Miami that, that I'm really happy with. I don't know if any of your audience has ever seen the 
the great Paul Newman movie, The Verdict. Yeah. Trial lawyers movie. So you'll remember at the end of the movie, the jury comes back with the question. It says, can we award more than the plaintiff asked for? Yes, yes. In my last trial before I came to Stanford, my last jury trial, I got the Paul Newman question. And the jury asked if they could award more than I had asked for. And the judge very adroitly managed to give them a response, a kind of vague response without steering them. And they did. They came back with more. And so that felt to me like a very nice capstone to my trial law career. So I consider that to be one of the big, my big accomplishments, although uh, it's really the jury more so than anything else that accomplished it. I just finished an article I alluded to earlier, designed for legal systems that I wrote when I was down in Singapore at the National University of Singapore Law Faculty, which uh, I'm very pleased with. While I was teaching at Stanford in 2014, I think it was, I built and produced the first MOOC. Do you remember MOOCs? Massive open online course. I did the world's first MOOC on negotiation, put it out there for, I think we had about 10,000 students, which was relatively small compared to some of the other MOOCs that were coming out at the time. It was the hottest topic for a couple of years on campus. General Electric licensed the course for five years for their internal uh, executive ed, but I've kind of let that go since then. You know, I think my biggest accomplishment most recently was under the heading of interdisciplinary work, doing enough work in design and design thinking to gain the lectureship over at the D school and now be able to work in the intersection between design and law, which is a very comfortable place to be and I think the right place to be for the work I'm doing. We both talked about that we have some level of scared. When you look out 20, 30, 40 years, where do you think we're going to land? I try to be optimistic, but here's my realistic response. I think the impacts of climate change are going to be worse before they get better. How much worse remains to be seen? And that's mostly because of the lag that's built into the system. You know, the carbon dioxide, methane, et cetera, et cetera. You know, remember the Montreal Protocol way back when in the 70s that addressed uh, the ozone hole and uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which had a 70-year lifespan in the upper atmosphere. We ultimately managed to improve the ozone situation, but it took a long time. That's my biggest concern about the effects of climate change. It's going to be worse before it gets better because of that lag. But at the same time, we have to make the moves to mitigate and adapt in the interim. And I'm fairly optimistic that maybe not 20 years from now, I think we're going to miss targets that are set in the 20-year time frame, but I think we will hit targets by the 40-year time frame. And I think the primary reason, to be honest, is technology is going to rise to meet the challenge because at the end of the day, I'm a Silicon Valley guy, and I've seen too many instances where the profit motive works to get technology. And I think carbon capture is coming. I think we're going to see an increase in the uh, an improvement in a variety of sustainable energy sources. And so I think we will bend the curve backward and we will get to draw down perhaps 40 years, at most 50 years out. We'll get back to draw down and we'll, we'll be going negative again from the peak. How much damage will continue to occur because of lag time. That's where I'm concerned. A 
lot of people I think are going to die. I really appreciate you using the word lag. I have not described it that way myself, but that is the right word. Yeah. The lag is going to get us. Yeah. And I'm hate, I, I, I really feel badly about the downer that a lot of people are going to die, but it's inevitable. And I think we have to confront that. It's going to be people who are poor, undernourished, undereducated, and unable to, with or without government support, unable to basically compete for the scarce resources, whether it be arable land or probably more importantly, water. We're going to have some, some significant catastrophes on our hands before we can get back to a real equilibrium that gives everyone in the world a chance. Uh, an equal chance. We're already out of whack and we're only going to get more out of whack due to the lag until it's so bad that everyone will agree we have to do something. 30 years ago when we were studying at Stanford, the experts would come in and talk to us. We were talking about the solutions that people are still talking about today. Like I said, carbon capture, geoengineering projects, you know, some kind of really out there projects like covering the tundra with huge sheets of white plastic to create albedo and protect them from melting and to try and keep the methane in place. All kinds of these ideas were already out there. They're not new ideas. The problem is that over 30 years, they did not get implemented or worked on or improved and turn into action. And that's still where we are. And the primary reason, and, you know, there is one professor, an anthropologist who was really strong on this point, Paul Ehrlich, was that human beings are wired by genetics to respond to acute problems, and they are not wired to respond to chronic problems. And climate change is a chronic problem, and it's not until we see acute results of climate change that we're really going to have that moment collectively as humanity. And that's really the unfortunate built-in, pardon the pun, design flaw of this big Gordian knot that we're facing. We are not good at being proactive as a people. No, no, unless it's for profit. And <laughs> nation states do not operate for profit, at least as far as public policy is concerned. But don't get me started on the limits of you know, technology and the profit motive go hand in glove, and that's great. And then you end up with websites like Facebook making piles of money where you've got software design theories like object-oriented modeling that could work really well in areas that are public sector nonprofits, such as designing better legal systems, designing better treaties. If we could have applied some of that brain power that was working on for-profit stuff in Silicon Valley and had them work on designing a really good Kyoto protocol 30 years ago, we might actually have moved the ball. How has the pandemic changed your perspective of the planet's future? Because everything shut down worldwide, not everything, but a great deal of economic activity and human activity shut down from the pandemic to address the transmission. We also saw a demonstrable, provable reduction in carbon emissions during that period of time. And so it demonstrates that we can reduce carbon emissions fairly quickly. It's just that it took a fatal virus to force us collectively as humanity to do it. 
And of course, once we get through the worst of COVID, whether it's via vaccination, herd immunity or otherwise, and life starts to return to semi-normal, although it'll never be the same as before COVID, we're going to go back to emitting carbon, you know, like it's 1999 again, my apologies to print. We're going to see those emissions rise again. But there is some solace to be taken with the demonstrable speed with which we were able to press down on carbon emissions when we chose to do so. I think there's a strong parallel, and this may sound political, but I think there's a strong parallel between the anti-vax community, anti-COVID vax community, and the do nothing about climate change community. I say do nothing about climate change. It doesn't matter to me whether they believe in climate change or they reject the science of climate change. What matters to me is, are they going to participate in doing something about it or not? And if they're not, I'd rather them just go home and get out of the way. What I don't want them to do is get on social media or worse, get on you know mass media and start spewing disinformation in the way that it's happened with the anti-vaxxers. I don't want them to feel they have to think climate change isn't real in order to accept an anti-vaccination perspective for some reason. If there turns out to be a real linkage in the population who believe one as opposed to the other, and that turns into persuasion of the anti-vaxxers into being anti-climate change or anti-science, with respect to climate change or pro-conspiracy, you know, pro-government conspiracy. I've actually met people who believe in the chemtrails theory that the government is, is poisoning us from, from jet aircraft. So I'm all ears if somebody can help me understand how to address and deal with that. Otherwise, I just have to move past it. Do you have advice for people that want to help mitigate climate change? I do. And you know, it, it, it segues on what we just talked about. It is to reject the message that's coming from the corporate government complex that number one, the solution to climate change is up to each of us individually, because that's just passing the buck. That's the same old tobacco company CEO BS protecting their profits and shoving the responsibility off onto individuals, that's not where the solution lay. And the reason is this is such a large scale problem that the only entities that are really capable of making a difference are going to be governments and corporations. And so my entire thesis, to be honest, for activism by design is that our activism has to be organized and directed at our governments and our corporations and the unfortunate power and financial linkage between the two. The power of the people is the power of the vote and the power of the dollar. And corporations respond to the power of the dollar probably more directly than governments respond to the power of the vote. As we've seen, governments are now in the business of altering and playing with the vote or suppressing it altogether. There's a country in uh, Asia that comes to mind. So my advice is to cast a critical eye to the messaging that's coming from the capitalist, neo-capitalist, corporate government complex and start
start taking steps, however small they may be, if it's petitioning your local school board, standing up and speaking to city council or county government about taking certain small steps on environment or advocating for representatives who are going to take on climate change issues at a larger scale as a number one priority. That's the pressure that has to come using our dollar vote with boycott and protest and the collective power of voting and protest. Even dictatorships or quasi-dictatorships in nations around the world, even those nations derive their power from the people. And the best example, most recent example of that is Arab Spring in Tunisia, the young street vendor, Mohamed Boziz, I think is his name, was harassed by the government in his small town outside of Tunis by local officials, local officers who tried to make him pay a bribe to sell fruit on the street. And he tried to get his fruit and his scales and his wheelbarrow back from the government from the police and they wouldn't even give him the time of day. So he, I, this is a terrible story, but this is the truth. He went out into the street, doused himself in gasoline, lit himself on fire and died as a result of it. And within two weeks, the dictator of Tunisia, AKA the president of Tunisia, who had been in office for 23 straight years, in two weeks, he was forced out of office because of the massive uprising of the people in Tunisia. And so even somebody who's co-opted a democracy and turned it into a quasi-dictatorship can be cast out of office if enough people join their voices and stand in the streets and demand the change. And he got run out of the country. He tried to flee to Paris. Paris kicked him out. And Saudi Arabia took him in, but they took him in under effectively under house arrest. And, and of course, that began the Arab Spring in, I think, somewhere between eight to 10 nations had significant governmental change as a result. The power of the people is real with respect to corporations and governments. It's just that we, at least in the, America, in the US, have become complacent, too complacent about using it. And that has to change now. Do you have any questions for me? I've got two. We all see momentum moving towards electric vehicles, not just in the States, but certainly in the US. And obviously that feels like progress, but of course that's just moving carbon emissions from the tailpipe to the smokestack, as it were, uh, at least if you assume most electricity is still from coal or natural gas, quote unquote, natural gas power plants. So what is your understanding of the state of the art of leveraging the shift to electric vehicles to then reduce carbon emissions? Number one, it's still a little bit better using electricity than putting gasoline in the car if it's bad electricity, if it's dirty electricity like coal. But that isn't the real argument. The real argument is that we are moving to a higher and higher percentage of renewable energy. And as we do, electric vehicles will mean a great reduction in greenhouse gases. And I think it was totally correct and is totally correct that we have to move both technologies forward, even if it isn't the best energy mix right now in some locations, 
They've got to start the journey of electric vehicles. They can't wait until it's all renewables. It's still a little bit better already, but as both move forward toward 100%, you gain completely with regards to greenhouse gases. And I use the term 100%. I want to back off that. I don't think there's ever 100% of anything. Yeah. I think that getting to 70% for both of those is an incredible gain for the environment for climate change. That all sounds right. And, and for me, although I'm going to admit that I haven't gotten an electrical vehicle yet because I don't drive much. I live in San Francisco. <laughs> I try and walk everywhere. But I think more and more people getting into electrical vehicles has the added benefit, uh, whether they're riding them as Ubers or whether they own them themselves, has the added benefit of raising their awareness of the need for electrical vehicles, why it's an electric vehicle, and why it's good. And it may help spread the message in a somewhat uh, subconscious way uh, about the importance of reducing carbon pollution. I, I think that's an important aspect of it. So I, for one, am, am equally pleased. But I, I like the answer. I sometimes forget that, yes, uh, we're leaving the gasoline in the tank and we're reducing the demand for gasoline, which is a good thing, but clearly shifting to renewables is the way to go. I can also talk about it being less expensive and it being better from an energy independence perspective. I do think soon we will have people that are able to go off grid, leveraging solar and leveraging their vehicle's battery. I think there's a lot of other great things uh, as well with them. Yeah, I think the tie between the, the battery in the car and the electricity in the home and some solar and wind, localized solar and wind, whether it's neighborhood or individual homes, that can really turn into uh, a very efficient model. But before I forget about it, I also wanted to ask you about Connect California. I noticed on your website that they are one of your supporters, advisors, and I've been curious about the program, but I don't really understand it. And I thought maybe both I and your audience might like to hear about it. Yeah, first, I would like to be transparent. I have a nice hunk of ownership in that company as well. So I, ah. I generally don't like to cross these very much. But I was approached by the CEO to help him be successful. And we have a lot of trust between each other. There's two parts to it. One is a device that actually comes from a company called Connector. That device allows the home to separate from the grid during an outage mm. so that you don't have to be concerned about your solar going on the grid and hurting somebody because today solar goes off when the grid is out so that you don't have backfeed of energy. So this makes it safe by actually isolating the home. But then the second thing it does is it attaches an inlet or an outlet in the home so you can plug in a battery or an electric vehicle, which will also keep your solar on because it'll see that there's energy present. And you could go, I think, for months. As long as there's sun, you can keep going off-grid with that kind of setup. Although the main objective isn't to go off-grid forever. The main objective is during an outage mm. to be able to have energy from your car, which is sitting there with energy stored and nothing that you can do with it. As a relatively new homeowner in Marin County, California, I'm actually going to be taking a look at this because for those of you in the audience who are not from Northern California, our issues with wildfires has now resulted in PG&E, our power company, undertaking uh, rolling blackouts 
to take the pressure off some of the wires when wildfire conditions are high. And so these blackouts come on a moment's notice, last for any you know unknown period of time with the whim of the utility, and they happen pretty regularly all summer long. So being able to survive a, an outage is no small thing anymore. Yes, because this device sits between the meter and the meter socket of somebody's home or somebody's apartment or small company, we do need the permission from the utility to approve these and make them available. And right now in California, we don't have those approvals, but we are working with the three major utilities in California to get them approved. Hmm. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is when I, when I do have my EV, I'm going to, I'm going to drive it out and, and load it up at some restaurant or something at the grocery store, load it up just to, to take it back to power my house. Well, that's the idea behind this, that you're still mobile. You don't go to zero on your car. Yeah. You have enough to drive around and get recharged. And if you have solar, keep solar on. So again, you can keep going indefinitely as long as there's sun. Cool. See, that's that's sort of, uh, I, I'm pleased to hear that. That's an, uh, one small example of technology uh, stepping up and, and contributing to the overall solution. It's just that we need millions of those small contributions to aggregate, to start making a real difference. And they're out there. Yeah. As, as you know, they're out there. Thousands and thousands of people are working on solutions that do all kinds of things that can help mitigate the effects of climate change or mitigate climate change. Yeah, I agree with that. And I still think that each and every one of us needs to aggregate our power to force companies and governments to do it cleaner, quicker, faster, at a higher priority and put more money behind it. Because Otherwise, they'll do it at the pace they want to instead of the pace we want them to. And we're going to suffer the damages of the lag. And the lag time damages do not bother governments and corporations. They bother the people. Hey, do you have anything else you want to add? Sometimes I'll close again with the idea of the intergenerational handoff. I like to suggest to people to talk to their kids or their students or both and describe what the intergenerational handoff is, the concept of conveying whatever the more senior people can. You know, there's three, four, five generations in any given life cycle. They all have names nowadays, apparently, although I don't know what, what they all are. And raise the consciousness of kids at whatever age about the fact that they do carry forward sort of the mantle of humanity and that their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents are their ancestors. And ultimately, they will be in our shoes and they will have to ask themselves the questions we should be asking ourselves, which is, what kind of ancestor do I want to be remembered as? Well, I want to be remembered by my kids and their kids and their kids as somebody who started making efforts started making a difference however small started trying to lean into the problem and join hands with others to do the same because that's how it's going to get done that's beautiful 
And with that, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. He's into climate now, but before, what got David started was environmental law. He was a scientist, and he was a climate fighter. So sad that he died. I'm talking about Steve Schneider. A year and a half in a tree. What incredible will. Thank you very much, Julia Butterfly Hill. We're doing a lot, but it's just not enough. You're focused on the intergenerational handoff. To convince people with data, if they really want to know a great source, is the Keeling chart based on Mount Mauna Loa. Learn more about taking action. Get the straight line. Check out David's book, Activism by Design. It's time that we start getting prepared. One thing that will push us is that we're getting scared. One of your successes, there was no denial. The jury gave you more than you asked for at your last big trial. If you want to learn negotiation, take a look at David's very successful MOOC. We get off course. We zig, we zag. The Earth's health we are causing to sag. People will die because of the lag. We don't have time. Now is the hour. We have to aggregate our voices. We have to aggregate our power. It was great to talk (laughs) to you. I'm sorry that it's done. Thank you very much, David Johnson. I like it. That was terrific. David talked about the generational handoff and how important it is that we talk to our children and grandchildren about the responsibility we and they have to take care of the planet. I agree. But sadly, many of the young people I've talked to have concerns about bringing children into this world, a world, they argue, that previous and current generations have not safeguarded. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. David reminded us that our aggregated voices have significant power over corporations and government. To combat the inherent lag in the reactive tendencies of the human race, we need to proactively take action together to mitigate climate change. (laughs) 